The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And a big welcome to everyone, especially anybody who's here for the first time. So, um, I've been talking about uh, the Buddha's teachings on the three characteristics now for quite a while. And uh, it's just when we bring the uh, stable present moment awareness to things as they are, initially we'll see what we call just the specific, or what we normally first see is just our interpretation of what's going on. And it's quite a practice almost like we're learning to see through whatever particular interpretation like we might have wherever you are right now at home or here you know we have that idea of what's going on and we don't have to have a problem with whatever idea we have about what's going on we just have to see that that idea that interpretation is just that it's a perception it's the meaning the mind is creating And then we can see there's a lot more here, like the particular sound of my voice, the loudness of it, the pitch, the different qualities, the different qualities of our visual experience, the shapes and colors, the amount of light versus darkness, the quality of the sensations. Not what we think that sound is, but sound as something being heard, or sight, visual experience of something being seen, or sensation, not what's happening in my knee that I'm feeling, but just that throbbing as an experience, or that twisting, or burning, or light, pleasant vibration, or whatever we feel as sensation in the body. So that whole level of reality we call specific characteristics, right? So we have our interpretation, and then when we have a little bit more present moment awareness, we feel the richness and diversity of the specific characteristics of the moment, what we're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, but not the interpretation of those sense experiences, but more the raw, immediate experience of that sensitivity through sight, through sound, through hearing rather, through touch, through smell and taste, and through the experience of knowing mental activity. But then there's a more subtle, and you could call this more the universal level. And I've been talking about this level now since late January. And what the Buddha says, and for us to check out, it's not something to believe in, but like that, when we're observing in this more immediate way where we're seeing the diverse activity of different specific characteristics of sight, of sound, of touch, of thought. Oh, this is a planning mind being known, or this is seeing being known. Then we begin to notice it's almost like the mind takes a bigger view and it understands that what's really relevant isn't the particular specific characteristic that is being known, but that it's changing. That whatever it is that's being known, it has this characteristic of movement or change. 
it arises and ceases. It's always in that changing process. It never becomes a thing. A sight, a sound, a touch, a thought, these specific experiences that make up our lived experience, they never become something because they have this nature of change. So intellectually we get it immediately, oh yeah, I know that things change, they come and go. But this level of studying the universal characteristic of change, it really makes an impression on the mind, it changes us. Because we have this superficial strong belief in thingness, that there's a permanence, there's a substance to life, to our experience, to me, and it doesn't actually line up with our experience. When we have the stability of present moment awareness, and we're not caught in our interpretation, and we're not entranced by the specific characteristics of what's coming and going, but we're sort of in this more settled sensing the underlying truth that, oh yeah, it's just a flow, it's an endless changing flow. And it's whenever the mind conceives of a somebody who wants solid ground, then there's some constriction. And this is that movement of desire, right? Because from this more normal frame that we live with, you know, this taking things personal frame or the egoic frame, way we frame experience, it's like, I have preferences. I know what I want and I know what I don't want. And what we really want is a situation that we think will provide satisfaction. But when we get the fluidity and the uncertainty of experience, that constant movement, changing movement, there's a sense, uh, there's a realization, it's an insight of exposure or vulnerability that that sense of self can never get permanence in the way that it wants permanence. And that's another underlying characteristic or universal characteristic that experience, this life we have, can't deliver what we want. Never. Which is why when we look around, I mean, it's easier to see in others, but when we look around at ourselves or at others, we the, the basic thing that characterizes us humans and maybe even all creatures is a kind of restlessness in our efforts to be, to become, to survive, to be safe. But we never really get to that place of deep existential rest. I mean, we get exhausted, no doubt, and we crash. But there isn't that more pervasive sense of rest because there's a restlessness inherent. And that's really that characteristic of dukkha. Usually gets translated as suffering or stress, but it has a more subtle existential meaning to it than ordinary. I mean, it does include ordinary pain and the not liking of that ordinary pain. But it's it really points to something deep and subtle about our 
our existential situation where we're here in experience that's always in motion, so I can't ever get on top of it and get it together. And then with further, once we understand that tendency to want permanence in a world that is impermanent, and then we're less caught by it, then we can have a clear sense and we start to notice the third characteristic, which I've been talking about the last couple of weeks, anatas, the Pali word for the impersonal or not-self nature of experience. So things are changing, can provide satisfaction, and are impersonal. And you don't have to use, like, it's impersonal. You could even say it's natural or it's a natural process. Because when something's a natural process, when we use that phrase in English, we generally mean that, like, I think it's happening, winter is becoming spring, right? And that we would call, most of us would agree, that's a natural process of winter becoming spring. And that process doesn't, isn't located anywhere. Doesn't refer back to that sort of headquarters where those people are in charge of winter becoming spring. It's a natural process. That's what we mean when we say something is a natural process, that it's happening in this um, mutual or this um, interdependent way. It doesn't have a location. So that's what we mean. That's that insight that seeing that in our experience, that dawns naturally when we're made peace with the changing nature, that it can't provide satisfaction in the way the ego wants permanence. And then we stick with this stability of present moment awareness and we start to sense that impersonal nature. And what I thought we could dig into a little deeper today is the impersonal nature of desire. Last week, I kind of dug into the impersonal nature of suffering. And a little bit more to the point is getting interested in desire. And so that could be considered a kind of homework now for the next couple of weeks. Because as I mentioned in the guided meditation time, desiring is sort of second nature to our conditioned mind, our habit-based mind, right? And it's really desire in that more general sense. It isn't negative. It's really the animating force of life, desire is, right? Desire got us here, got you up this morning. Some of us brushed our teeth, you know. When we adjust our body because there's pain in our knee or back, that's desire, right? Doing nice stuff arises out of desire. Practicing arises out of desire. We don't want to make desire into the bad, you know, the evil one. Desire is just, it, it, like I say, it just animates existence. And so the problem isn't desire. The problem is misunderstanding or misperceiving desire in that personal way, personalizing desire. And this is explicitly described when the Buddha talks about the Four Noble Truths. There is this uneasiness in existence, that's dukkha. It should be understood, it has been understood. 
So that's like homework for humans, right? We want to get to know dukkha. It's relevant. That's the first noble truth, is understanding that the dissatisfaction that I regularly experience, the uneasiness, the burdensomeness I experience in life, even just simple frustrations like dealing with bureaucracies, it's like it's a pain in the butt. I gave some money to someone, but they had lost that phone number that they set up their PayPal account with. So it was this huge hassle <laughs> with this other person and myself and PayPal, because it's sort of sitting there in this PayPal account, but the other person who I gave it to, the money to, can't access it. I can't get it back. So we got on the line finally last night, said, this is my Saturday night, on the phone with PayPal, and I got the other person, who's a friend of mine, on the line with me, you know, and we're discussing, like, how can we resolve this? And it didn't get resolved, but some, I mean, <laughs> we just, we found a, a way out of it without it being really resolved. And it's, it's just endless, all these things are. I'm at that age now where I'm going to have my 65th birthday soon, and so I have to sign up for Medicare. And those of you who are my age know, it's like, you need a professional to figure this out. It's just, it's just so crazy. And it's tax season, and that is like, I, I always feel this is such a, just an injustice of how complicated this is. And who gets to take advantage of it, or people who can afford, people who have spent their professional lives becoming experts on the tax law. You know, and the rest of us, you know, either spend a lot of money that we don't have, or we, you know, just spend a lot of time and still do a bad job at it. <laughs> and it's endless. And so it can, that, that frustration, you know, can really weigh us down. And it's a good place to look at desire and to, to see that, oh, of course we want the world to be a different kind of place. But if I identify with my desire, then I can get into that rage cycle, This it should be this way, it's not fair, it's unjust, or whatever. But this is a thing, wherever we're bumping up against life and circumstance, desire will arise, like wanting this nice thing to continue or wanting this bad thing to end. And then we can look at that well, I don't always have to center myself. It's like, yeah, there are all these different tugs, like wanting nice weather. For those of us, for those of you rather, who aren't living here in the upper Midwest, it's like we're having a late winter and we still have, you know, at least a foot, maybe a foot and a half of snow on the ground, uh, in most places at least. And, you know, and it can feel appropriate to desire. But, you know, we can really get into a dark place of personalizing the late winter. As if, even though we know it, we wouldn't say it out loud, but internally it almost feels like it's somebody screwing with us. <laughs> and and it, it feels personal in that way, doesn't it? And it's just interesting to highlight how desire works. Or when our partner treats us a certain way, or our pet, treats us a certain way, how we can personalize it. Like we had a guest and we gave our guest uh, our bedroom 
And so we were sleeping in, um, we have a big living room and some places to sleep. And, and my cat slept where I slept last night. We have a little day bed in our living room. And I could pers- I could see my mind going back and forth, like, well, he must really love me. <laughs> right? We personalize something that isn't actually personal. But it just, or we can, you know, well, he's personally messing it with me. Like when he wanted to get fed in the morning, he would sort of claw my foot, you know, just sort of grab it. It's like, hey, it's 5.30, this is the time when you're supposed to feed me. And uh, so it's just interesting in, this, in terms of homework is just to notice that movement, like this shouldn't happen or I want this to happen, and how we personalize it. And use your imagination, like bring to mind some desires that are pretty accessible to you. The the desire to have lunch or desire to see a friend or the desire to resolve some problem in your life. And just imagine now feeling, seeing, sensing that desire as an animating force, like it's there, it's alive in us in a way, can be activated at least but to sense it as nature, not in a personal way. So that's really the homework assignment. What is desire without the identification? Even the really strong desires, like for sexual attraction. What is that attraction without personalizing it? Or for food, or for sleep? What is the desire... And, you know, one of the things we can do in our meditation practice, you know, part of the form is to sit relatively still. It's not like movement is bad, but it's a really wonderful training to be relatively still because then we notice a lot of impulses to move. And we get to study that very simple desire to want to move the body to make this adjustment, to leave our sit early, or to, you know, straighten the spine if we've gotten collapsed, started to slouch. And it's not like any one of those things is inherently bad, but it can be really instructional to remain, but to observe the desire. Oh, that's just that desire being known. Because we want, it's like a wonderful laboratory because the incentives are, are already built into our sitting time, meditation time. Like the posture itself reminds us, oh yeah, that's what I'm cultivating, present moment awareness here. And right now, there's this tug, this impulse to want to move my leg. Or I'm cold, and there's a tug to grab my meditation shawl and put it over my shoulders or whatever it might be, get up and get a sweater. And it's really nice if we build into the form, like you set your little meditation timer that's going to make a nice bell sound, and you don't even look at the clock, so you know it hasn't rung your time, and you chose the time, it's not like someone forced you, and it hasn't rung yet, so you know, no, no, I've made this resolve to be in this posture for that 15, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever you sit for. And it creates this really powerful dynamic where we can 
really feel strangely, if I don't move, I'm going to die. Or if, if I don't end this sit, I'm going to die. Right? It can really, the pressure can really build. And it's just useful to see how compelling those thoughts are. They look so personal and believable. I really can't handle this. You know, whatever's maybe some emotion has come up in your meditation time. I really can't be with this. Or even something that seemingly shouldn't be a problem, but can be really hard to be with, like restlessness. We just feel that kind of wiry uneasiness in our body and mind. And it's like, I can't be here. Or I got to check my email. And we know we don't really need to do it, but it's just how believable in that moment desire the way that the desire is constructed, if we lose our wise, stable presence, we immediately take the bait, don't we? And we won't even realize it until we're like sitting at the table, we got a cup of coffee, our computer's on, the radio's on, and then we realize, oh, I was sitting. And we don't even know how we got out of the set, right? because the mind took the bait, and as soon as it identified with the thought stream, it was no longer aware of, I'm a meditator meditating, right? That whole form that we resolve to be with, the meditation form, like, oh, this is what I do. I get up, I brush my teeth, and then I sit for 30 minutes, and I stay put, and I try to remember to come back to the present moment and track the reality of the body sitting and the breathing body and what arises and passes in that context of being present with the mind and body, right? We lose it. And then, even in hindsight, we can be really uh, inspired to be a student of desire. What is it about desire that is so seductive that we lose the thread of present moment awareness? It's like, has this capacity to cast a spell. And then even if the inclination, like the remembering to be present, were to come back online, it's like we postpone, oh yeah, I'll get back to you. I I haven't forgotten about you, honey, you know, but first this. Isn't that right? First I got to do this. And then even before that's done, oh yeah, and then there's that. And then I want to do, and I should probably check the weather, you know. And uh, and it's amazing how many things we can get absorbed into because of desiring that we can postpone the interest we have in observing desire as just a natural phenomenon. And again, it's not about repressing desire. It's about creating the context where we can see desire. We don't see desire when we're identified with it and acting it out. We see desire like the desire to eat lunch. You know, get it out there in front of you and then just sit for a minute or two. It doesn't have to be forever. And just notice the impulse. And in your mind, the desiring is very, uh, it has access basically to all the intelligence of the mind. So first it will, you know, do something relatively subtle like, okay, you've been present for a while, it's time to eat your lunch, you know. 
And if you, if wisdom is stable, you'll see that. Oh, that's just desire. And I don't have to take that bait. Because I said I'd sit here for three minutes, and it's only been 30 seconds. You know? <laughs> so, ah, I see you. I see you desire. That's just that tug, that about to impulse not to eat. And then, you know, we'll try something a little stronger, maybe more seductive. This is stupid. This is stupid. You know what desire is. If anybody saw you, it would be so embarrassing, right? So it's some kind of shame move, like you should just eat your lunch. This is stupid. And it just on and on. It even it will pull out the kind of ultimate talk. If you don't eat, you're going to die. <laughs> Like you think it's just like postponing eating lunch, but where is this going to end? <laughs> then you're going to want to do this with dinner. Eating is part of life. Eat your damn food. <laughs> no, really, just a, and it all happens because you're just willing to take a few minutes to observe the mind, the habits of the mind, before you eat your lunch. Same thing, like. Um, it's another really interesting place is at the end of a sit, like maybe you did set your timer, you did resolve to sit for 30 minutes, let's say, the timer rings, you shut it off, you're sitting there and then you continue to sit. And they just watch. No, 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 you did what you said you were going to do. Like just all the different expressions of desire. You've got to live your life. As if just sitting there for a few minutes is synonymous with never, ever doing anything ever again. <laughs> but it's like desiring will play every card it can play to motive, you know, because it isn't that desire wants us to do anything. What desire is really dependent on is the identification itself. What's threatening, not to me, but what's threatening to habit is the non-identification with habit. Uh, with uh, desire. That's what's most threatening. And that's what we want to cultivate. We want to have a really nice, friendly, intimate relationship with desire. Like I said, it, desire is great. We need desire. But we don't want to personalize it. We don't need to personalize desire. And you can repeat back to yourself the desires you're having, even the ones you've chosen to act out. You know? The desire to go home is being known. Even as we're, you know, getting up, putting our shoes on, getting in our car, or whatever, walking home. Oh yeah, this is the desire to go home. The, that tug. And we'll notice the sort of promise. It will be nice when you're home. You know, when you're home, you'll get to do this. And it's like, uh, when you get rid of, when you get, it's a little promise, a little carrot, you know, this is your reward. When you get rid of what you want to get rid of, when you get what you want to get, when you become who you want to become, then it will be special. There will be what we call gratification. And it's true, isn't there? Isn't it? It is true. We, we are gratified when we get what we want. I mean, generally. When we eat our lunch, we want to eat our lunch, and then we eat it, there's the gratification of the taste and the chewing and the swallowing and the pleasantness of all of that. So it's useful to study what gratification is. The Buddha at some point in his teaching said, you know, 
of all of the desiring that humans have had and the experience of gratification, I became a student of gratifying desire. I know the experience of the gratification of desire. I know what it is and I know what it isn't. And we should be able to say the same thing. It's interesting, like when you uh, hear this instruction, like to get close and interested in the experience of gratification, you'll start to bump up against our habits. Like when we are gratifying a desire, we tend not to be present with it, which is sort of interesting because this is what I've wanted. So it's like whatever it is, really needing to pee and then peeing, like being there with the satisfaction that comes with emptying the bladder or eating the food you've wanted to eat or whatever it might be. Like getting being intimate with those experiences of gratification and getting very clear of what it is, but also getting very clear of the ephemeral nature of gratification. Because we've had so many moments of gratification in our lives where we've gotten what we've wanted. But we always imagine that this next gratification, what I'm wanting, what I'm desiring, that's really going to make a difference. But it doesn't line up with reality because we've had a lot of gratification and it hasn't really changed stuff much. So why do we think gratifying this desire is going to make such a difference when having gratified so many other desires hasn't? But again, that deepening of insight about the impersonal nature of desire which doesn't make it bad, it just means that desire arises because of our conditioning. It's not really me who wants lunch, or wants to go home, or wants a raise at work, or wants a, a healthier body, or wants, or wants this or that, wants to get rid of. It's not really me, although, you know, it's okay to use conventional language, my desire, but when we actually observe desire, we see that it arises and it's there because it got set in motion due to causes and conditions. And we can even catch ourselves creating the tendency to desire things, right? Like, because we desire different things, all of us. This friend that stayed over was talking about how they're getting into pickleball. Her husband, who's been a long time tennis person, is training them uh, to play pickleball. And, uh, you know, we can become somebody who really desires playing pickleball or chess or whatever it is, knitting, listening to the news. It doesn't matter what the particular thing is. But all of those things that we've got to have, our coffee in the morning or tea for me in the morning, the news, my game of pickleball or whatever it might be, how did it become this essential thing in my life? What got cultivated? And now we've become the person, right? We, we have this view. I'm lost if I don't have my coffee, or if this friend isn't in my life, or if my cat doesn't sleep with me, or, you know, we have these sort of things that we've, that desire, it started out as just the perception 
oh, this is nice, having turned the heat to 78 instead of 68, you know, nobody can tell me what temperature to set my house at, this is my abode, I get to decide, you know, and, uh, and then we think about, like, we can make a whole drama in our mind, first there's the perception, oh, it's really nice that the house is warm, the temperature I like, and then we can create a lot of mental habits, like, oh, those do-gooders who keep their temperature at 62, and they're just suffering, they're such idiots. <laughs> or whatever, you know, people might think, I'm just, obviously, just concocting something, but this is how these desires become part of our character. Because first, it's just a nice perception of gratification, like, yeah, it feels nice having the house a little warmer. And then it becomes part of our thinking pattern. And all the justifications, all of the resistance to anybody telling us otherwise. And then it becomes like this established view. And it doesn't matter what anybody says anymore. We've got this fixed view that this is who I am, this is what I do. It's okay because I recycle. So I can have my... You know, it's like we have this whole world view that becomes impenetrable. And, and then desire and the identification with desire, it becomes a kind of prison. Because then this sense of a me depends on this. I'm somebody who has to spend the winters in a warm climate. Well, I'm somebody who needs a lot of sunshine, you know. And, or I'm somebody who can only wear natural fiber clothing, right? And I'm not saying that there aren't differences and there aren't things that are more toxic and less toxic. But what I'm saying is the identification where the mind starts to ossify, to congeal around an ordinary experience of gratification. Something is nice because we got rid of what we didn't like or got what we do like. And then we become, we start to congeal it by thinking about Oh, it should always be this way. I want it to be this way. I'm afraid of it not being this way. And that gets institutionalized in our mind, in our heart. We become the person. We become identified with that desire. There's no sense of me without, like, and when we describe ourselves to somebody new in our life, we basically tick off all the desires. Like, I'm the person who likes this and doesn't like this. You know, I don't like these kind of, um, uh, politicians or these sort of policies or people who think in these ways and you know and you know this is how our culture is I'm for abortion I'm against abortion I'm for guns I'm against guns I'm, you know and we have these sort of built in desires around this the way the country should be the way the world should be the way people should be and uh, it's a kind of incarceration in our own desires our own conceptions. These are my kind of people, these are not my kind of people. So this work around desire and getting to know desire is liberating. And just watch out for this uh, shadow in Buddhism and I think just generally in religious spiritual practices to make desire bad. Desire isn't bad. The cause of suffering 
isn't desire, it's the attachment or identification with desire. It's the wrong understanding of desire. So how can we feel desire? It's just interesting, like around sexual desire, attraction, even if it's not sexual, but just wanting to be liked, wanting to belong, wanting to be included. It's really useful to be able to feel that social sexual energies that we just have because we're alive and we have bodies, all of us differently, but you know, it's, it's real for all of us in different ways. To be able to feel that aliveness, it's like a current without misunderstanding it or being pushed around by it. But yeah, oh yeah, this is like, this is like what it's like when you have a body and how many billions of years of genetic conditioning, right? That's what we're living through, this, you know, just huge amount of evolutionary conditioning around reproduction and around attraction and repulsion and safety and belonging. And and we have to make peace with it. But that's different than just acting it out. Because that obviously gets messy when we just act out impulse. And already, you know, we've learned to feel impulse without acting it out, but we generally use fear and repression. Now we want to start using more and more wisdom. Like, I don't have to be ashamed that there's that desire. I can just feel that desire. Like, sometimes people make us really angry. And, you know, some of us have been conditioned, whether it's around gender or just the culture you were conditioned in, anger is bad. And that can be really unhealthy, you know, to have a fear of anger. Because that emotion, the desire to crush, the desire to get rid of, that's as much as what it means to be alive as almost anything. So how can we let anger or whatever you want to call that emotion to get rid of, to destroy, to end, how can we let that move without misunderstanding it in a way where we're going to cause harm to ourselves or others? How can we let it move without setting things in motion that cause harm? And that's an interesting question. How can we be uh, somebody who wants to connect and wants to love and be loved without causing harm to ourselves and others. But that's the interesting, those are the interesting questions about being human, aren't they? And we need to, t- and we have just the right tool, the stability of present moment awareness. And the last thing I'll say before uh, ending today is, and I've been saying this a lot lately, the way that we see what we haven't seen is through contrast. So if you really want to study desire, you have to know the experience of contentment. Because that relative peace of being okay with the way it is creates that sort of background. So when the desire gets aroused, you can really see it. Because in contrast with the evenness and peace of contentment, you really get to see what desire is, right? Because you need that contrast, that basic 
calm, that basic settledness, that basic contentment. Not perfect. Because then desire stands out. Oh, this is just desire moving in the body and the mind. Well, can I get to know you? Can I be intimate with desire? Can I feel what this feels like? And then you'll see like all the off-ramps to want to identify with it. Oh, I don't, I can be with you without taking you personally. But it's a training. We have to get good at it. We're not good at it initially, right? Desire arises and we immediately take it personally. And because it's personal, we immediately act it out. But when we, that, when we have a sense of calm and contentment and ease, then we can lean into that ease to give permission for the desire to express itself without acting on it. Like it's, cause that, it's almost like that space in the mind. Yeah, desire, you have permission to show yourself, show your colors. I'm not afraid of you. And you can even say things like that in your mind. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid to feel you. You have permission to move. What does this desire feel like? What is the tug telling? What is, what is it saying? <laughs> you know, that tug. So then hear what it says and realize that's just the heart's tug saying this. You know, you'll be really happy if you get that. Yeah. And then you can ask, well, what else is the heart saying? You don't have the money to pay for that. <laughs> you know, or you'll be in a lot of trouble. You remember, you're married. <laughs> there are consequences, right? And seeing the big picture. Oh yeah, there's that desire. And then there's the wider context of that desire. And all of that is equally true here and now and can be felt. Okay. And it feels like this. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.